Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and you join me in Salerno, Italy, as I'm here to research Operation Avalanche, which was part of the Battle for Italy in 1943. But long before this, back in 1939, we had the invasion of Poland by Nazi forces. And in this podcast, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, we're focusing on Poland. Because prior to the outbreak of the Second World War in August 1939, Hitler and Stalin agreed that controversial, some would argue Faustian pact that saw non-aggression between the Soviet Union and Hitler's Germany. This was known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Now, a core part of this was the partition of Poland between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, paving the way for Hitler to take his share of Poland unopposed by the great powers. With this in mind, and as we approach the 81st anniversary of Polish surrender on October the 6th to the Germans, we have world-renowned Second World War historian and author Roger Morehouse, who discusses the Polish campaign separating myth from reality. Roger provides us with a comprehensive analysis, outlining the abject horrors that the Poles suffered under the twin occupations of the Nazis and the Soviets. Now this is some... This is as big as, this is it. This is the start of the Second World War. But rather than writing it from the British point of view, you're actually reminding us that it was, in fact, the Poles that were initially in, uh, in the crosshairs of yes. Hitler's Wehrmacht. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, the Poles, bless them, I think they get a poor deal uh, in a lot of things. I mean, for, certainly the, the Anglo-Saxon perspective on history tends to stop, you know, kind of at Berlin. And uh, most things, points east of that, are... are pretty much ignored, with notable exceptions. But I think Poland sort of falls foul of that. And a good example, really, is the, is the Polish campaign. You know, 39, it starts the war. It's very significant, as I show in the book. It, you know, a lot of the sort of salient features of the later war, the sort of barbarization of warfare, the targeting of civilians, all of that sort of thing, blitzkrieg, no less, is all in the Polish campaign. And yet, you know, it doesn't really feature in our collective narrative of the Second World War. Beyond maybe a page, it might get a, you know, the odd mention that the Poles are, you know, send cover against tanks, all of that sort of mythology. And it struck me when I was writing the last book on the Nazi-Soviet pact that, you know, there's a big gap in our understanding 
actually, of that campaign. And rather than seeing it from a purely Western perspective and talking about, you know, Westminster shenanigans and Britain sort of doing the right thing, as in going to war, but they're not, not actually doing much about it, to actually sort of switch the perspective and try and see it from the Polish perspective uh, and use Polish sources as well. So I, I've kind of switched the uh, point of attack, as it were, to look at it from a Polish perspective. And it's, and it's a very different story. Start at the beginning. Poland, which had disappeared, had been swallowed up by its neighbours in the 18th century mm. and 19th, suddenly re-emerges after Versailles. It is occupying bits of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, bits of the former Russian Empire, bits of the German Empire. Why did that unique geography provide the excuse for Adolf Hitler to, to go to war against Poland? Well, you've got the situation after the First World War, where basically both the Soviet Union as a successor state to, to Russia and then Nazi Germany as of, you know, as of 1933 are both revisionist states. They both want to revise what happened at the end of the First World War. And it's worth mentioning that Poland actually sort of does re-emerge after that 123 years of, of being wiped from the map. Its re-emergence is kind of done on its own bat. So it does, it profits from that collapse, but it, it, it's already de facto, you know, created its own state by the time Versailles is, is, is kind of rubber stamping its existence. So it, it's not, it doesn't owe its existence solely to Versailles. That's a point that's worth mentioning. But to those two revisionist states, to Nazi Germany and to the Soviet Union, it's, it's an abomination. It's, it's taken their land. It's, a, it's a, almost a personification of the Versailles settlement. You know, and it has to go. So even before 33, actually, um, you know, German senior German ministers are saying that um, you know the, the future grounds of a German uh, Soviet collaboration must include the destruction of Poland. So it's at, even in the in the early early 1920s, even it's been talked about. So the point at which Germany and the Soviet Union find common ground will inevitably mean the destruction of Poland, and that's what happens with the Nazi-Soviet Pact in August 1939, and then you know, a week later you've got the, the German invasion of Poland. I mean, just give us a sense, I mean, why, why is there this antipathy towards Poland? Is it peak, or is it the fact that there are Germans living now in, under, a, under a Polish government, being forced to learn Polish and use... Yeah, I mean, there is that, that, that element. I think primarily it's the interwar Poland symbolises the Versailles Treaty for those two countries, and they want to get rid of the Versailles Treaty. The other aspect is, of course, yes, there are about a million and a half Germans living in Poland, ethnic Germans living in Poland. Those are the, you know, the remnants of, of the German populations of West Prussia, which becomes the Polish corridor, of the Pulsen district and Upper Silesia. So you've got large numbers of, of Germans within, within Poland. You've got large numbers of Belarusians and Ukrainians on the eastern frontier as well. So it has large minorities, which is part of Poland's interwar problem, that in essentially post-First World War, pushing its boundaries as far as it could, particularly in the East, it actually inherits or develops for itself a minorities problem, which is never really solved in the interwar period. If, if anything, it's exacerbated. You know, Poland, as, a, as a, a state that sort of restored itself in 1918, is quite sort of aggressively nationalistic in its domestic policy. So it doesn't sit well with having large minorities within the state. That's a problem for it. And it's a problem that they're never fully reconciled. You know, the it's German... problem with nationalism. I mean, you know, it's... Yeah, it is. I mean, you can understand why the Polish interwar state is quite nationalistic, because it's suffered all of that, you know, 120-odd years of occupation. So when it finally is able to have its own state, it's almost inevitably going to be quite, you know, patriotic, nationalistic. 
but that doesn't sit well with the fact that it's got large minorities in, in, its, uh, in its midst. So it's a problem of its own making that it never really solves. It's almost like the ideology of nationalism, dreamt up by a load of Frenchmen in the 18th century, proved inappropriate when implanted on the very complex geography, ethnic yeah, geography and, of Eastern Europe. And it is very complex as yeah. well. You, have, you, you, don't, have, you don't have clear sort of delineation of, of populations. You've got very often urban or semi-urban populations are different from the rural populations that surround them and things like that. So it's actually very, very difficult to draw ethnically clean lines anywhere. In, in Central Europe, and that's that's a sort of universal problem that is never is not solved in the interwar period, and, and is only really solved by the brutal answer, which is to deport those people that you know after the Second World War they'd start deporting Germans, and and you've got massive kind of ethnic upheaval in that period, not least the Holocaust. So you've got that's the essentially the only way to solve the ethnic problems of Central Europe is by massive upheaval. Or just jettison a nationalist idea of a state. Uh, that too, but <laughs> you know, you are a, you are you know early twentieth century. Yeah. We are still in a nationalist period. Aren't right. We? So Hitler partitions in breach the Munich Agreement, famous Munich Agreement. Hitler partitions Czechoslovakia. Mm. He fixes his gaze on Poland next. What does he think? How willing is Hitler to provoke a a world war, a general war, by nineteen thirty nine? Hitler has a, an odd sort of sort of psychosis about this. On the one hand, he doesn't think it will provoke a war because he thinks that the West are worms, as he described them. Um, they're not going to stand up and fight for Poland. So he doesn't think it's going to provoke a war at all. So he's quite happy to sort of sabre rattle and undermine Poland as he does. I mean, there's lots of sort of border incidents and there's um, you know, propaganda offensives in the summer of 1939, which is constantly trying to portray Poland as the bad guy, as the aggressor. And that culminates in the, in the Gleiwitz incident of August 31st, which is this attack on a radio station inside Germany, but close to the Polish border, which is made to look like it was done by uh, Polish irregulars. And uh, in fact, it was... In fact, it was the SS, yeah, that had done it itself, which is a fabulous story. And I, again, I, I sort of retell that story in, my, in the introduction to the book, because it's the, it's the opening scene. And it's a great scene. And again, you know, part of my justification for the book was to want to put the Poles back into their, their own narrative. As I said at the beginning, and there's one, you know, interesting case there that the the victim. There was only one victim. Again, it's Gleiwitz gets told in the wrong way all the time. It's mixed up with other operations of the period. Uh, it's conflated with other other operations, and it, the narrative is really is wrong most of the time. It's told. If you actually go back to the original sources, which I have, you can you can sort of clarify what it is. And there's only one victim of Gleiwitz. And his name was Franciszek Honjok, and he was an ethnic Pole living in Upper Silesia, in German Upper Silesia. And he was picked up by the Gestapo because they wanted someone with a track record of Polish agitation, and he had that. And he was picked up from a bar and taken to a number of police stations, never registered anywhere, you know, despite the sort of mania for, German mania for paperwork. He was never registered anywhere. No one spoke to him. Uh, and he was there smoking gun. So he was the guy that they were going to you know, leave at the scene, which they did. And he is shot at the end of the Gleiwitz operation. They take over this radio station and they are supposed to transmit a sort of incendiary Polish announcement saying that, uh, you know, the War of Liberation has begun and we're going, to, we're going to take German territory and all this sort of thing. They only get about nine words in and then for some reason it's broken off and then there's just white noise. But the first nine words, they reckon, were actually broadcast. Uh, but it didn't matter. It was just a propaganda exercise to give them the excuse. And then Honyok is left at the scene, having been drugged initially and then shot. But Honyok is never fleshed out. So again, you see, he's, he suffers from this idea that the Poles kind of are beyond the radius of history. 
So I wanted to flesh out who Honyok was as far as is possible. So again, I sort of researched that to, to actually flesh out this first victim of World War II. So that in itself is, a, is, a, is an interesting aside anyway. But now Hitler, Hitler's willing to run the risk that he, he thinks that the Western powers are not going to intervene. He thinks they're weak, they're corrupted, that democracy has corrupted them, uh, and that uh, they won't intervene in the, on the Poles' behalf. But just to make sure, he does, makes all of this effort to undermine Poland's case for assistance, to make it look like it's the aggressor, to give every excuse possible to those voices in the West that say, oh, do we really want to be going to war for Poland? For which there were a few. So he really doesn't think it's going to happen. There's a wonderful scene where, where the British declaration of war is actually delivered to him in the Reich Chancellery office in, on the third morning of the 3rd of September, where the message is relayed back to him that the British had basically declared war. And he turns to Ribbentrop, who's been his great advisor, and he says, what now? Because it's, this, isn't, this isn't what Ribbentrop had told him would happen. And it's not what he thought would happen. So there's, there's a profound miscalculation, actually, on Hitler's part, that uh, he, he didn't expect this to trigger a, a world war. So talk to me about the German invasion and Polish preparations and resistance. Following the incident, the SS fake attack on that radio station, what happens in the hours following that? Following morning, you know, the, the tanks are already rolling. Following morning, by the time that uh, that incident is being reported in the German press and on the, on the German radio, you know, the tanks are already rolling. They, they roll, you know, already about four o'clock. The first shots fired are at the Westerplatte, which is a Polish port uh, just to the north of Danzig. And that was a military depot which had been established in the 1920s, uh, essentially to handle sort of sensitive and military traffic which couldn't, couldn't go through Danzig itself because it would be disrupted by the German population of Danzig. So the first shots are fired by the, uh, an aged uh, German battleship, the Schleswig-Holstein, which opens fire at almost point-blank range on the, the Polish uh, depot on the Westerplatte, which is a great site. You know, it's still, I was there a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's a great place to go and see, you know, as, as the, the, the site of the opening shots of World War II. It's quite phenomenal. Uh, not many people go there, I think. I think more of us should. Those are the first shots. Simultaneously, the first air raids take place. The town of Wielun, for example, is raided uh, soon after five o'clock. Again, Wielun is undefended. Uh, and is, is almost completely destroyed by, by German Stukas. Another town called Tchev, which is a sort of strategically important crossing on the Vistula, the River Vistula, is raided at 4.30 in the morning as well. So already, you know, at dawn, shots are being fired and the tanks are rolling across the frontier. And then what was the state of Polish preparation? It, it, it's actually quite thorough. The Polish army is not as inept or ill-prepared or feckless, as it's often described. Part of the problem with this narrative is that, you know, because no, nobody has had a sort of a vested interest in telling the story over the years, we're left effectively, you know, the thing that, that anyone seems to know or thinks they know about the September campaign is basically German propaganda from World War II, which is that the Poles are, you know, charging German tanks with their cavalry, that they're sort of feckless, they're not worth defending, they're foolish, they're unprepared, all of this stuff. Uh, and that's really not fair, that's really not true. If you look back at you know, what, what the Polish preparations were, of course they are massively lacking, in, particularly in armour, vis-à-vis the Germans. That's one thing. But the, the Poles still, they're, they're the fifth largest standing army in the world in 1939. They have a, a pretty good air force. By most people's standards in 1939, their air force is pretty well equipped. They have tanks. 
They just don't have any of the same quality of the Germans and the same quantity. And crucially, their preparations in, in 1939 were as much strategically minded as they were uh, militarily. And the strategic aspect of this is that they didn't want to give the Western powers any excuse not to act. And that meant you had to basically defend your frontiers. So the logical argument would be, in 1939, you find a defensive line that you can hold to, which would be, a, you know, ideally, you know, Poland's pretty flat, so there's no natural defences except for rivers. So it was talked about amongst the Polish high command that you could defend the line of the Vistula, which runs more or less north-south through Poland, and the line of the river Narev, which runs in the northeast, you know, it joins the, joins the Vistula. You could defend those two lines. They're both substantial rivers. They would be defensible. But then, of course, you're ceding all of Western Poland to, to the Germans. And that would mean that the British and the French would go, well, we're not going to fight for you if you're not going to fight for yourselves. So it's another, you know, more grist to the mill of those in the West who would say, well, we're not, why should we defend these, these, these idiotic Poles? So the political argument meant that you had to defend the frontier. So then they're left in the situation that you're, you're exposing yourself to a, to a rapid advance of more mobile, more armoured troops than you've got and they're going to encircle you and they're going to destroy you. So, so the plan was basically to engage them on the frontier, to make sure that that political aspect is triggered, but at the same time to try and execute a sort of fighting withdrawal as fast as possible. So it was all thought through. This wasn't some sort of, you know, again, like the German propaganda says, this wasn't some sort of foolish, feckless idea that they would take on tanks with, with cavalry. They never did. It's a myth. But they actually had a thought-out plan where they would engage for the political benefits that that would bring, bringing the British and the French into the war, and then withdraw to defensible lines. But the problem they had was that they, they couldn't withdraw fast enough against the, you know, the, the mobile German forces. Let's talk about those mobile German forces for a second, because the Polish campaign is the first time we get a glimpse of so-called blitzkrieg. Is, mm. is there an element of myth? I mean, how, how effective were the German forces in September 1939? And what was this new concept they were deploying on the battlefield? German forces are very effective, and certainly in comparison to the Poles, and particularly the Air Force. So the Luftwaffe you know, has, it doesn't have freedom of the skies. Again, that's a bit more mythology. The idea that the Polish Air Force was destroyed on its, on its bases on the 1st of September, it wasn't. It still is fighting, admittedly, against more powerful, a more powerful opponent and, and you know, outnumbered and outfought and outflown but it still fights you know, up until in, into the second week and beyond. But German air raiding on Poland is very effective, and it's very effective as a terror weapon. Um, so in terms of sort of sowing destruction behind the lines, damaging Polish morale amongst civilians and so on, hugely effective and used in a, a very effective way. On land, again, the, the Germans are very good at what they're doing, but it's very mixed. So the, again, the idea that you know, they are instituting this new doctrine of Blitzkrieg, which is you know, fast-moving, armoured spearheads, breaking through the defensive lines, pushing through to the rear, just you know, essentially keep going and prevent the creation of any sort of phased defence on the behalf of your opponent. That idea is used in some examples. You know, there is some coordination, particularly people like Guderian. General Guderian, you know, one of the godfathers of Blitzkrieg, and he was very good at doing this and driving his forces on all the time. There's a wonderful scene that I recount in this advance where Guderian actually comes across one of his commanders 
and says, well, where are you headed? And, and the commander has his sort of map and he shows him. And he says, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go there. And he points to somewhere like 100 miles further on. He said, I want you to take that by tomorrow morning. And he goes, you must be joking. But that was essentially was the essence of Blitzkrieg, is that rapid advance of, of armoured columns as far as they could possibly go to disrupt any sort of phase defence. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So armoured columns, tanks rampaging up these streets and tracks. Aircraft like the Stuka acting as mobile artillery, so exactly. talking to the tanks, bo- bombing whatever's ahead, and not worried about the flanks. You just go deep like a, like a sword thrust. Yeah. Okay. And, and very often, I mean, it, it is not yet, in 39, the crucial thing, it is being used. I mean, it's not yet official doctrine, but it is being used in isolated examples. And, and there are cases that, I, again, I, I wrote them up in the book, where, you know, those columns find themselves very isolated mm-hmm. and they end up you know doing a sort of hedgehog defense overnight waiting desperately waiting for the rest of their own forces which in some cases sort of 50 kilometers behind them and might be horse drawn or yeah, people walking yeah. Yeah. so again the whole horse thing you know i mean the germans had more horses in 1939 than the poles did you know let's, so let's not let's get away from the idea of the germans all being in tanks and the poles all being in horses that's mm-hmm. that's uh, that, again that's german propaganda the trouble is for the poles you hear that a German spearhead is 50 kilometres behind you and you just panic, you just melt, you just panic. Yeah. Whereas actually if they, as the Russians later learned and demonstrated, it doesn't really matter. If you just stand firm where you are, the, the, and you know, the, the German might actually be quite weak even though they've yeah. got their spear tip. Okay. But again, it kind of, it, it hadn't really been dealt with in that way before. And as you say, the Soviets, the Red Army had to learn how to deal with that. And they learned the hard way and with, with heavy losses. But the Poles weren't really versed in how to do it. Where the Poles had something to defend, where they had um, fortifications, bunkers, of which there were many installations, particularly places like Muava up in the north, the frontier just south of East Prussia, you know, they could actually hold the Germans very well. So where they had something concrete, literally concrete to defend, they actually fought very well and they could hold them off for, for many days until outflanked. 
So, I mean, even, even Hitler sort of, you know, in, in a speech in Danzig on whatever, 17th of September, you know, praised the fighting ability of the ordinary Polish soldier. In this, they, they fought, fought with, with great uh, courage. And they did. And in many cases, they gave the Germans a bloody nose. When did Britain and France declare war? So the British and the French you know, agonised uh, about their declaration of war initially. The Poles, right from the outset, from September the 1st, were messaging uh, London and Paris and basically saying, OK, well, you know, the terms of our agreement have now been triggered. When are you declaring war? And uh, British and the French wrestled with this. The British didn't have the capacity on land to really do anything effectively at the time. They didn't have any troops across the, the uh, channel, for example. So they're rather dependent on French action. The French were less willing to act than the British were, but they both managed to sort of collectively grow a spine and actually declare war, which they did on, uh, on the morning of September the 3rd. This is this famous, you know, we've probably all heard the, the radio broadcast of Chamberlain announcing to the world that he delivered a, an ultimatum to Herr Hitler that uh, German forces should be withdrawn forthwith from Poland and so on. And No such undertaking, no such has, been undertaking has been received. So consequently, this country is at war with, with Germany. Wonderful moment in, you know, when sort of hairs on that stick up on the back of your neck moment. But that's, in, that's on the morning of the 3rd of September. And as such, I mean, a, a lot of what the British and the French politicians are talking about in that period where they are agonising, they're talking about a sense of national honour. They're saying, we can't let these people down. You know, our honour demands that we do what we said we would do. And, and it is an honourable act to have declared war because actually, certainly from a British perspective, there's not that much that we could have done. There's really not much chance that the British could project their power to the Baltic and to Eastern Europe. That certainly isn't the case. And as I said, there are no British troops across the uh, channel. So there's not much that can be done in the short term uh, in terms of a land offensive. What they could have done was to start bombing German targets, which they do do. They start rather tentatively bombing military targets, Wilhelmshaven, places, ports and so on, and dropping leaflets as well, which is just preposterous. You know, so they start dropping leaflets on the German population saying, you know, do you know what your country is doing and you know, separate yourselves from, from Herr Hitler and his gang and so on. I mean, that was a rather ludicrous thing to do. The British attitude is somewhat half-hearted, to say the least. And there's a wonderful scene where, I think it's Kingsley Wood, the Minister for Air, was uh, challenged in the cabinet meeting and, and said, well, why aren't we bombing uh, German arms dumps in the, in the Black Forest, which would, you'd imagine was a, you know, a, a rather obvious target. And he said, good God, uh, are you not aware that the, that's private property? Uh, this rather sums up the British attitude. We were very much fighting with one arm behind our back and, and sort of going through the motions, or not even that, just pretending to, to make war. Collectively, our hearts weren't in it, I think, and it, and it took that, you know, the, the German attack westward in 1940 to actually sort of galvanise British opinion and, 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 crucially, the British government, the British military. So not much is done. There is this sort of Tsar offensive that the French undertake, which is supposedly a prelude to a general attack in the West, but it never, it never amounts to anything. The French probe into Germany. They probe, and it is a, it is a very, very half-hearted probe. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of accounts of, you know, a division being held up by a single, single German machine gun, for example, which is just, I mean, it's ludicrous. Half-hearted doesn't begin to describe it. And actually, in retrospect, not that they could necessarily have known that, but the German forces in the West were absolutely paired to the bone. You know, they were, they were really hollowed out. So all of the German air force of offensive uh, 
capacity was in the east. Almost all of its armour was in the east. So actually, had they been minded to push hard in the Saar Offensive, the French, they could have achieved something. But they weren't. And it you know, lasted a couple of days and fizzled, fizzled out and they, and they withdrew. And of course, the Poles are reporting the Saar Offensive in the most sort of glowing, hyperbolic terms and saying, oh, we, you know, they're advancing on Stuttgart. No, they, no, they weren't, you know. But they wanted to believe that, that there was something going on in their name. And what about the character of war in the way that it impacted on civilians? We, we've talked a bit about air attacks. We now associate the Second World War with unimaginable barbarism. How quickly does that start to make itself felt, even in these very, very first hours of the Second World War? Uh, it has to be said straight away. I think there's a, a convention sometimes imagines that the, this idea of the barbarization of warfare is something that develops you know, slowly during the, the opening phase of the war and maybe comes to its you know, sort of horrible apogee in the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 41, for example, and thereafter. And we know that story from you know, the, you know, the Holocaust, the Einsatzgruppe and all of that stuff, the deliberate targeting of civilian populations. But to imagine that that's not happening in 1939 is completely wrong. And this is, again, is part of this, this problem with the perspective. If, if our narrative of 1939, such as it is, is essentially taken from German propaganda, then we're not going to hear this stuff. So we have to shift the perspective and look at you know, what Paul's writing about this, about this episode. Interestingly, the, the outlier here is actually the French campaign of 1940. In the French campaign of 1940, the Germans commit three massacres all incidentally by, by SS forces, and they are Vormhaut, the Paradis, and, and Vinkt. So within a six-week period, they commit three massacres of POWs and civilians. In the Polish campaign, the Germans alone, and bear in mind that the Soviets invade Poland as well from the east after, after September 17th, the Germans alone commit an estimated 600 massacres. So it's, it's a daily occurrence. You know, there's something like 15 or 16 per day on average, during the Polish campaign. And that's purely down to the racist ideology that the German forces go in with, basically saying that the Polish people are inferior, that they are Judaized. It's not just Jews targeted, incidentally, it's Poles as well. Large numbers of Jews are also massacred, but Poles predominantly. Farmers are targeted because you can usually find a weapon on a farm of some description. So, of course, that's quite easy to just, you know, conflate with sort of partisan activity. Civilians are caught up in the crossfire and caught up in the, in the process of Blitzkrieg where you've got, you know, isolated Polish units that are left behind, behind the lines. And it's very, again, it's very easy to describe that then as partisan activity. If, you're, if the line has moved, you know, 20 kilometres on and you're still fighting there behind the lines, effectively, then that's, you're a partisan, you can be shot, you know, that's the logic. So there's, a, there's, there's various reasons for it, but the underlying one is, is simple racism. Because the same conditions apply in 1940, and there are only three massacres only, but there are only three massacres. So you can see that that barbarization is there right from the outset. And it's, a, it's almost an integral part of the Nazi worldview and of you know, the ideology that they go in with. Two weeks into the campaign, Britain and France aren't doing much, and then things get a whole lot worse for the Poles. Uh, 17th September, Stalin's Red Army invades eastern Poland which was a surprise for many people, not least many Poles. You had had the, the Nazi-Soviet Pact signed in August, August 23rd. And those 
clear of eye, shall we say, might have realised that this was on in the offing that the that the, uh, the Soviets. Which, by the way, Germany. we should tell everyone that you wrote an excellent book about the Molotov Ribbentrop yeah, Pact, the Nazi Pact, which you've been on the podcast. I have. About I have the Devil's Alliance. The Devil's Alliance. Go and read uh, it. Twenty fourteen. Yes, it was. Uh, Excellent piece of work, may I say. Yeah. Um, so go on. Yeah, so some people might have sort of seen the writing on the wall that Stalin would invade Eastern Poland as he did. But I think for a lot of people it's still a surprise, not least for the Poles themselves. And part of, part of the Soviet method, actually, is to, as they do now, you know, with their various activities, is to sow uh, confusion as they go in. So they invade dawn on 17th, and a lot of the messaging, they drop leaflets, for example, on, on you know, isolated sort of towns and so on on the Poland's eastern frontier is very very rural it's very underdeveloped uh, lots of small towns but you know lots of farmland not many people but they go in uh, deliberately sowing disinformation and saying we're coming to help you against the Germans of course they're not right we're not going to hurt you because we're all Slavic brothers together so we're not we're not attacking Poland but Poland has collapsed and we've come to protect our you know, ethnic uh, Ukrainians, ethnic Belarusians. So, you know, a mixture of messages coming out of the, out of the Red Army propaganda machine. So, again, that's sort of what you see nowadays. You know, they see the same thing, this sort of deliberate disinformation as a, as a, a not necessarily to push a particular narrative, but just to sow inaction because people don't know how to react at all. So in some places, Polish border guards fight them. In other places, they sort of welcome them welcome them into the barracks and say, you know, we're so glad you're helping us against the Germans. And then, by the way, oh, we're not. And they, they you know, they pull out the rifles and that's it. So it's a it's completely bizarre picture, the Soviet invasion. And actually, it's very interesting because it's not really been done. Where you've, where you've had been a couple of books that have talked about the, the Polish campaign before, they've really, because of a lack of sources and maybe a lack of will, perhaps, they haven't looked at the Soviet invasion in any sort of depth at all. And the more you look into it, the more bizarre it seems. It's, it's, it, it is a military invasion, but it's, it's absolutely chaotic on both sides. Um, the Red Army is in no fit, fit state really to fight because it's just come off the back of the, you know, Stalin's purges, where a lot of its senior personnel have, have been, been put up against the wall and shot. So the, the Red Army, in many cases, they are lacking uniforms, they're lacking weapons. You've got, you've got units marching barefoot, for example, into Poland. And the, and the Poles who have this tradition of, you know, the, the cavalrymen and all, you know, the, the very grand tradition of the, uh, the Polish Uhlans, wonderfully dressed in these sort of tailored uniforms and so on. And they looked at these, they look at these Red Army soldiers coming in with string for belts and bare feet. And they say, what is this? We, you know, they're saying, this is like, and it's described as a, a, an army of ragamuffins by one bystander. You know, they say things like, Asia has invaded us. Who are these people? It's just complete incomprehension of what's going on. So it's actually a fascinating story that really doesn't get uh, talked about in the, in the sort of conventional narrative of World War II. Chaotic on both sides. But what's it, the, the key thing to sort of bear in mind is that actually the Soviets are importing their own brand of warfare as well. So whereas the Germans in the West are importing race war, as I've said, that, that huge number of atrocities, their, their ideology drives them on to you know, view their opponents as subhuman. In the East, the Soviets are importing class war, and they very quickly start targeting local authorities, politicians, police officers, you know, anyone in any sort of position of authority, school teachers, you know, professors, doctors, priests. And this is the beginning of that sort of process of 
the decapitation of Polish society, which both sides do, and I talked about that in the previous book. Both the Germans and the Soviets actually collude in this idea of decapitating Polish society to rob Poland of its elite. Uh, and that begins in the, Pol in the Soviet example, it begins right at the start of that invasion. So immediately to start targeting landowners, start targeting policemen, and they're rounded up and sent east, or worse, you know, in many cases they're just uh, shot on the spot. And is the Soviet invasion the end for Poland? Effectively it is. There was, it's difficult to see that the Poles really had much of a chance against the Germans on their own. So they needed, and they knew they needed Western help. That's why they had that sort of strategic plan and so on. That's why they signed the, you know, the Anglo-Polish Agreement on the 25th of August. They were fully expecting to have material help from the West. But their primary problem is that that didn't materialise. So for, on their own, they couldn't really hope to beat, beat the Germans. So they are already reeling by the time the Soviets invade. But there they could... Feasibly, there might have been you know, some space in eastern Poland where they could have regrouped, but that's rather, I think that's rather tenuous. The Soviet invasion is certainly a nail in the coffin of the Polish state, not least because one, you know, their tactical decision at the time is to move as much as possible in terms of you know, administration, politicians, high command, to move them down into the southeast of the country and across into Romania, which was you know, nominally neutral. So that, they called it the Romanian bridgehead was to get as many of their troops and their units and their high command and so on across the border. And obviously the Soviets coming over the frontier and heading for Lvov and cutting off that uh, line of retreat stopped that or hindered that uh, Romanian bridgehead. So it's certainly an, you know, a nail in the coffin. But of course, you know, the Poles keep fighting. The last Polish units in the September campaign actually surrender on the 6th of October. So they keep fighting for another you know, good two and a half weeks after the Soviet invasion. Uh, which is worth bearing in mind. Just to conclude, really, the Polish government go into exile in London and, and Polish airmen play a key role in the Battle of Britain. And, and so Poland fights on in, in, in many ways. But just give me a sense of the calamity that was unfolded on Poland from the 1st September right up to 1945. How did that country suffer? Oh, uh, again, we, ha we have to get away from our sort of Western perspective of World War II in this and see that actually the sort of the very cockpit of the war in World War II you know, as Tim Snyder describes in his book Bloodlands, is kind of Poland, uh, the Baltic states, Ukraine, is, is all of that area of Central Europe. Yeah, that's basically where World War II happened. That's where World War II happened. <laughs> Europe, you know, that's yeah. where you have the largest death tolls. That's where you have these, you know, these rival totalitarian systems fighting out. And in the case of Poland, you've, you've got, you know, it, it's unique in that sense that Poland, you know, for the opening two years of the war, is partitioned by the two totalitarian powers, the Soviet Union in the East, Nazi Germany in the West, and, it, and they treat their respective halves as a sort of a laboratory of, of their own ideology. So they're busy deporting people, they're moving people around, they're executing people. I mentioned this, this uh, decapitation of Polish society that goes on. So there's sort of active process of, you know, you know, radical social and ethnic change being forced on Polish society in that period and it's extremely violent and then of course once the Germans attacked the Soviet Union in 1941 then all of Poland falls under German occupation and that becomes the essentially the laboratory of the Holocaust that's when the Holocaust gets going so again the scouring Polish populations they're using Polish territory as a dumping ground for 
all of those Jewish populations and other to Nazis undesirables that they just shifted west as a prelude to extermination. So again, you know, Poland is front center in the narrative. And then to cap it all, liberation in inverted commas uh, in 1945 is a Soviet liberation. Is the same enemy that they'd already experienced between 1939 and 41, that had imposed its communist system and its class war on Poland in those period in that time. So for many Poles, you know, liberation only really comes in 1989 when the communist system collapses. So yes, when you mentioned Poles escaping into exile and that narrative, which again is tremendously heroic, and we forget perhaps that the Poles fought in exile in every theatre of the European war. Monte Cassino, Narvik, Battle of the Atlantic, Arnhem, the list goes on. But for the Poles who stayed at home, you know, this was an absolutely searing experience. Do you have a sense of overall casualties in pre-war Polish population? Pre-war, pop, uh, it, it's essentially, it's between a fifth and a quarter of the total population is killed in World War II. So per capita, it's, it's I think, one of, if not the highest death toll uh, in World War II. I mean, that's up there with a cataclysmic event like the Black Death. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Why I say, you know, we have to kind of shift our focus a bit. We have to get away from our rather cosy, you know, parochial, uh, you know, Western view of, of Dunkirk and D-Day and all of that stuff. And actually, well, yeah, that's fine. And that's, that's our narrative. I understand that. That's our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers. But if you really want to understand where World War II is happening and what's going on, you have to shift your gaze further east. And where it starts. Thank you very much, Roger Morehouse. Now the book is called... First to Fight. First to Fight. Everyone go and buy it in a shop or on the internet. Thank you, Roger, as ever. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.